Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. I trust that you were encouraged uh, this past week as we had a missions emphasis week. Uh, Several of you uh, indicated to me how much you enjoyed uh, Dr. Young. Some of you hinted that you appreciated his uh, timeliness and his uh, brevity. Uh, I have some bad news for you. Dr. Young said that he yielded the balance of his time to me. So I've got some extra, extra time this morning to, uh, to use up. Luke chapter 6, uh, where if you'd stand with me as we read it together, we're encountering a section of the Lord's uh, Sermon on the Plain here in which he deals with the subject of judging others. We'll be looking at verses 37 and 38 this morning, and, and then continuing verses 39 through 42 uh, next week. Let's read God's Word together. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 6, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading and application of his word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would soften them through the work of your spirit, that we'd be attentive to what you would have us to to learn here on this this subject of, of judging others and help us to exude the same grace that you have demonstrated to us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, before we dive into the text, there's a a matter of uh, some seriousness that we need uh, to take care of. We need to determine something. I'd like us to determine this morning uh, who the holiest person in the congregation is. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands, and I'd ask you to raise them high so that I can see and judge you more clearly. Then I'm going to read a series of statements, and if these statements apply to you, I'd like you to put your hand down, because clearly you are not the holiest person in the congregation this morning. Are you ready? Okay, let's raise those hands very high, and uh, you, may, you may choose to put the, your hands down at any, you don't have to point, put them down at the exact moment that I say something that doesn't apply to you if you're a little embarrassed, Okay. All right, hands up high, ready to judge you here. Uh, I see you more clearly. Uh, Statement number one, I watched Fox News or MSNBC News this morning instead of preparing my heart for worship. Statement number two, I drove more than 10 miles over the speed limit this past week. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not surprised. I know your hearts. I listened to a secular radio station this past week. I held hands with someone with whom I am not married while we were still dating. 
Is anyone still up? Okay, good job. I've grown facial hair. <laughs> the eight-year-olds are doing great. I have a translation of the Bible other than the English Standard Version this morning. <laughs> I've attended a movie in the past month. I've worshipped in a church. I've worshipped on a Sunday morning in a building that doesn't have a steeple. That includes all of you. <laughs> I'm trying to be obviously a somewhat humorous here as we uh, introduce a very serious topic. How do we handle the shortcomings, the perceived shortcomings and failures of other people? What is our heart attitude toward other people as we encounter what we believe are their shortcomings? Let me suggest to you that there are several problems we face when we interact with other people and judge them. The first problem that we face is that we create unbiblical standards by which we judge other people. For example, uh, we look at the length of someone's uh, shorts or skirt or the length of their hair, and we, say, we uh, conclude something about their moral purity or about their holiness. We read the latest parenting book, and it, the latest parenting book may contain some very uh, wise principles for how you should parent your children. It would give some, some good suggestions, and we take those suggestions, and we look at other people and how they're parenting their children, they're not following the same suggestions in this book that we've read, and we make conclusions about their godliness as parents. We take sometimes wise principles, but not necessarily biblical ones. We look at other people, and we pass judgment about their holiness. Or sometimes we make assumptions about the heart state of someone else or conclude things about their mind that we don't necessarily know to be true. You do this with, with politicians all the time, right? Remember President Bush? He, he was a liar, people said. He, he lied about weapons of mass destruction. Or President Obama, he, he, he lied about this, or he he's, uh, hates America. We make assumptions about our politicians all the time, judging their hearts in ways that we simply cannot do. We do this with, with siblings, brothers and sisters, assume things about one another's hearts that they have no ability to gauge or to judge. So we create unbiblical standards as we view other believers or people outside the church and judge them in that way. We assume that we know their heart attitude when we clearly cannot, and at the same time, we assume an air of self-righteous superiority. As we look at the conduct of other people, we assume a, an air of superiority. I am the, the perfect arbiter of what's, what's right and wrong. My standards of righteousness are correct, and, and theirs are not. And we assume a self-righteous self air of superiority. This is a very serious topic for Christ's church. A judgmental spirit can destroy your spiritual life, and it can destroy the unity of Christ's church. My prayer for us at Bethany Community Church is that we would have hearts that have been so transformed by God's grace that when you squeeze us, grace and mercy comes out. My plea for us as a church, my prayer to God for us as a community of faith, 
is that grace and mercy would just permeate, would just permeate God's people here. Here's the central truth, I believe, of this text here in verses 37 and 38. I believe that what Jesus is saying is this, those who lavish God's grace on others are going to be those who receive God's grace. Let me say that again. Those who lavish God's grace on other people are going to be those who receive God's grace themselves in the future. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that the same standard that you use to measure others, God is going to use to measure you. Those who lavish God's grace on others are going to be the same people who receive God's lavish grace upon themselves. If you're a person this morning who's convinced that you're in need of God's grace, and that should be all of us, then you should be a person who has a desire to lavish God's grace on others. You say, Daniel, are you talking about works-based righteousness? No, we'll unpack this statement more as we go through the text. But understand this, those who desire to receive God's grace must lavish God's grace on others. Now, as we talk about interacting with other human beings and as we encounter the shortcomings and the failures of others, there's two instructions that Jesus gives us in the text. The first instruction is this, don't pass judgment on others. Don't pass judgment on others. That's the first instruction. We see that in the beginning of verse 37. The second instruction, do lavish mercy on others. Do lavish mercy on others. That's the last part of verse 37 and verse 38. Let's start with this first one. Don't pass judgment on others. Look at verse 37. It says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now if our culture, the North American uh, 21st century culture had a favorite Bible verse that everyone voted on, I think this would be the verse, right? A people who know no other verse of Scripture, have no desire to know anything about Scripture, know this verse, right? And it's parallel in Matthew chapter 7. Hey, judge not lest ye be judged. And very often, as we as Christians interact with people in the world and make moral statements, what verse do they bring to our attention? Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Hey, judge not lest ye be judged. It's often brought up in the context of making moral statements. Hey, you can't judge me. Jesus says not to judge me. Ravi, Ze- Ravi Zacharias has a very interesting statement. I believe it's Ravi Zacharias. I'm not, I, think th- I think he's the one that said this. He was talking about a debate in which he was uh, engaged with someone in a conversation, and this person said, look, hey, Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And uh, Ravi Zacharias asked, I think, a very relevant question. He said, can you tell me where that verse occurs? No. (laughs) Well, can you tell me the context in which Jesus said it? No, but he said it, right? Well, Well, sure, yeah, he said it, but the context is obviously very important in determining what a person means. For example, if you and I were engaged in a conversation and, and uh, you became very upset with me, which has happened before, and you begin to, to raise your voice as you talk at me, I say, hey, don't shout at me. What am I saying? I'm saying the basis of the context of that conversation, I'm a little uncomfortable with the level of your voice as we discuss this issue. Now, if I'm crossing the street and a big truck starts coming at me, 
And you say, you know what? He said not to shout at him. Better not. Hey, Daniel. Drunk. Oh, too bad. You know. <laughs> Don't shout. Don't sh- he doesn't like shouting. No. Or we're at a football game, and, and the, the, the team that we're cheering for scores a touchdown. Oh, Daniel doesn't like shouting. Better be quiet here. No, the context in which a person makes a statement is very helpful in understanding what they mean by that statement. What I want to do, I want to talk about five ways, because I believe this is so important, as we talk about don't pass judgment on others, I want to talk about five ways Scripture uses this word judge. And I think this will help us as we interact with our culture and in our own spiritual lives think about the right way to handle the shortcomings of others. First way that Scripture uses the word judge is this way. Sometimes the word judge refers or judging refers to a conclusion that a person reaches following a a mental process. It refers to a conclusion that a person reaches. So example, you just turn one chapter over to Luke chapter 7. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, to Simeon. And he says this in uh, verse 43. He's, uh, he's just told the story of the moneylender who had two debtors. One owed, 500, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. They couldn't pay. The moneylender canceled the debt. Jesus asks Simon, now, which of them will love him more? Uh, Simon replies this way in verse 43. He says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says this, You have judged correctly. You've determined correctly. You've used your mental faculties to come to the right determination. So that's one way in which the word judge is used in Scripture. A person looks at the available data, they make a conclusion, and that is a perfectly right and appropriate thing to do. Jesus says you've judged correctly. That was the right decision, the right conclusion to reach. Sometimes in Scripture... The word, secondly, refers, the word judging refers to the, the human court system. So, for example, in the book of Acts, as Paul goes through all these trials, this word, same word that Jesus used here in Luke uh, 6.37, is used later in the, in the book of Acts, as Paul goes through the court system. That's, that's judging. Jesus tells the twelve disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, he tells them that they are going to, to judge the nation. That's, yeah, that's Luke chapter uh, 22, uh, verse, verse uh, yeah, 22, 30, Luke, Jesus says you're going to be judging the 12 tribes. And so there's a sense in which the word judging is used to refer to a conclusion that a person reaches. It's used to refer to the human court systems. It's also, judging is re- used to refer to God's condemnation, God's judging. Now, let me give you a couple verses to turn through if you want to turn to them very quickly. Uh, one is in Acts 17, verse uh, 37. Or actually, 17, verse, starting verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. Paul is talking to the people in Athens, and he says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, Acts 17 because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's going to be a day in the future, Paul says, in which God is going to judge the world. He's going to to judge the world and determine the rightness, wrongness of their conduct and practice uh, judgment upon them. Now, how can he do this? Because God alone has the ability to judge in righteousness. He has complete, total, moral authority to pass judgment on others. 
Acts 7, 7 also tells us something very interesting. As Stephen is talking about the, the history of God's people as he prepares for his martyrdom, verse 7 of Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen's talking, he says this, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. God has the complete moral, moral authority to judge. God also has the right goal in judging. As God judges the people of Egypt, what is his goal? The goal is his worship. He judges them so that his people come out, can come out of Egypt and engage in worship of him. Throughout the minor prophets, as you read them, it's very interesting. As, you talk, as it talks about God judging the nations again and again and again, it reveals that God's ultimate aim is not just punishing the nations for their sin, but punishing them so that worship of him will result, so that all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues will engage in worship of him. Only God has that goal perfectly as he judges others. Only he can judge in complete righteousness, and only God can judge with the right, perfect goal in his judgment. Finally, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, we see that only God has the complete ability to judge because of his knowledge. He says, he's talking about uh, the Father in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 17, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Only God has the ability to look at a person and know everything about them. Only God has the ability to impartially judge a person judging them not just upon the, the snippet of their life that you and I see, but upon the totality of their life, their mind, their heart, their actions. Only God can do that. So, again, we're talking about judgment. Sometimes the word judging refers to a mental conclusion we reach, some sort of conclusion we reach after a mental determination. Sometimes uh, judging refers to the human court system. Sometimes judging refers to, to God's condemnation and judging. Sometimes the word judging also refers to human discernment, human application of God's standards. Luke chapter 12, Jesus will say, judge for yourselves whether or not this is right. Use your ability to look at this situation in light of God's word and determine whether or not this is a right course of action. I turn to 1 Corinthians, and as you turn to 1 Corinthians, look at, look at chapter 5. Oftentimes, as people will quote this phrase that occurs in Matthew chapter 7 and here in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, oftentimes when they say, judge not lest ye be judged, they're talking specifically about uh, sexual morality. Okay? Uh, you have no right to judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, but look, it's very interesting what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul uses the word judge, the situation in which he applies it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, there's a very terrible thing that's taken place in the church in Corinth. Very disturbing Paul says this in verse 1, look, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, that is his stepmother. They're in this relationship. And the Corinthians are cool with it. 
in the church. Paul says, that's terrible. He goes on. He says, you're arrogant. In other words, the the Corinthians were saying, look how tolerant we are. Look at the ability that we have to, to overlook sin. They're taking this, the right understanding that we should be gracious and applying it in a terrible way. Saying that they no longer have the responsibility to confront sin. He says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, can you see any parallels with this situation and the situation in our own day? It goes on in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I believe what he's saying there is this. Look, you need to judge that this determined, based on God's standard, that this conduct is wrong. And because it's wrong, you need to confront a person on the basis of God's revelation, show them that it's wrong, and allow them and allow them to respond to that correction. He goes on. Conclusion of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm not saying to, verse 9, to, to not associate with sexually immoral persons, people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, since then, you would not need, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And then he goes on and talks about judging again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The point is this. Judging in Scripture sometimes refers to believers applying God's standards of righteousness. And to fail to apply God's standards of righteousness, Paul calls arrogant. What we're saying as we fail to deal with sin, especially in the church, is setting ourselves above God's judgment as we refuse to judge on those matters upon which God has already judged. God's judgment is right and perfect and true. This past week, my grandfather, a very a godly man who loved the Lord dearly, uh, passed away. He passed away a late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. Yesterday, we were in East Tennessee uh, for his funeral, and his, his niece stood up. And, and person after person that shared about my grandfather talked about his, his love for God and his love for others. She told a, kind of what I thought was a humorous story <laughs> about uh, my grandfather. She said that everywhere that he went, as he dealt with other people in the family, he he couldn't help but, but talk about the Lord that he loved so dearly. And someone else in the family or a friend came to my grandfather's niece that was telling the story, and they said, I can't stand being around that, that dub guy. He is constantly preaching at me, judging, preaching. 
She goes, look, he's not preaching. He just wants to save your soul from hell. <laughs> he loved this person that he was talking to. And he understood not his own judging of this person, but God's judgment on this person and upon all of us because of our sin. And he wanted this person to, uh, to avoid that judgment, to find God's righteousness. That is a good and right thing for a person to do. Okay, let me, let, let's review here. We're talking about don't pass judgment on others. What is Jesus saying here when he says, judge not lest ye be judged? There's kind of four types of judgment we've talked about so far. We've talked about a conclusion we've reached. We've talked about a, a court system those things are appropriate. We've talked about God's judgment. We've talked about human discernment, application of God's judgment. Now, here is where things get dangerous. Sometimes judgment refers to human condemnation. In and of ourselves, we condemn the actions of another person. We do it self-righteously, we do it not with the same goals that God has in worship. Remember, God's goal in judgment is worship. We don't do it with God's goal. We do it from our own standards. Romans chapter 2, and we're flipping around a little bit here this morning to help us understand the variety of ways that Scripture uses this term judgment. Romans chapter 2 is very instructive as we think about the danger of judging. Paul writes this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, listen to this, this is why judging is so dangerous, condemning other people is so dangerous. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Here's the danger. As we look at another person's life and condemn them for certain actions, we are in line of God's wrath and judgment because we do the exact same thing that that person does, although it may manifest itself in a different way. Let me uh, share with you an illustration that I have cleared with my wife. A very important caveat there. Uh, Friday, uh, Whitney was a little stressed out, okay, a little stressed out. Now, she had good reason to be, if a person has good reason to be uh, stressed out. Uh, she had, uh, she'd, we, we had a busy couple weeks here. Uh, her aunt and uncle uh, came to visit us on, on sa Saturday of a week or so ago. We had a great time with them, great visit with them. But on Tuesday, you know, we find out that my grandfather's passed away. And so uh, I told her, I said, well, here's, oh, and, uh, after her aunt and uncle were going to be here, we had the, the joy of having her, her parents here as well, okay? So we're, we're enjoying all these things, but they can be a little stressful for, for Whitney. She's planning everything out. So Friday, we've just uh, had visitors. We're Friday morning leaving to drive 10 hours to Tennessee, go to the visitation Friday night, Saturday have the funeral, drive back 10 hours, and uh, come back so we can be here this morning, okay? Now, for some reason, she's stressed out about that. And I begin to give her a, a little sermon Friday morning as we're driving to, to East Tennessee. I say, uh, Whitney, you know that God is sovereign. You know that God has all things in control. And it's, it's uh, frankly, uh, sweetie, a little sinful to be so stressed out by all these circumstances. 
Trust in God's sovereignty. If things don't get done, they don't get done. Your parents aren't going to care that everything's not perfectly clean, and they didn't. They're very happy here. So I begin to preach the message of God's sovereignty. And in my heart, a little surprised that she was so stressed out by the circumstances of life. That's Friday morning. Then we, begin, we continue our travels. And we make many unprecedented uh, bathroom, un- unscheduled bathroom stops. The time begins to, to tick away and tick away. And I realize we're in danger of missing the beginning of my grandfather's visitation, which didn't seem like a very good idea to me. Then we switched drivers, and it's been, it was, you know, this is a difficult passage, and uh, I was trying to prepare, I, so I scheduled some time to go, okay, I can, in the car, I can kind of gel all these thoughts together, I'll turn on my computer, and I'll, I'll take my Word document, and I'll make all these amazing changes to have this, this, this sermon together by Sunday morning, and uh, we switched drivers. Again, I've just given her this message on God's sovereignty and how wonderful it is and how we should respond rightly to trouble and stuff. And uh, as I pull out my computer, I realize <laughs> I don't have a power cord. I'm not going to be able to work on my sermon. And I'm starting to smile a little bit less, and uh, that's when the tire blows out on the van. And then we get to the hotel, and the hotel doesn't have, it has a computer in the lobby. They go, okay, I'll be able to work on the sermon on the computer in the lobby, and the computer doesn't work, and on and on and on and on, and suddenly I'm a little annoyed. (laughs) My wonderful wife doesn't say a word, right? But in my heart, I'm like, I'm preaching on judging others. I thought that she had a wrong attitude to bad circumstances earlier, and here I am in the exact same boat. And it's true for everything, right? The problem with human judgment is that we practice the same thing that we judge others for. We also see here in Romans chapter 2 another problem. Uh, Paul, as he's, as he's talking about passing judgment on others, he, he talks about God's judgment, Christ's judgment. It comes down into verse 16. And he says this, he talks about the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The problem with our judgment of others is that that we don't know what's in the heart of of another person. Uh, We don't have the ability to to, to look into the hearts and see why they're doing what they're they're doing. Whenever I arrived at my grandfather's visitation Friday night, I arrived late. I arrived in a white t-shirt and dress slacks, and I arrived covered in dirt from changing a tire, right? A person just looks at me showing up for my grandfather's visitation late in such a tire. Like, that guy doesn't really love his grandfather. There's circumstances that precipitated my appearance, right? Oftentimes, as we're, and I, again, I'm thinking a lot about my last weekend here, as we're driving down the highway, we see the actions of other drivers. We can't even see their face, but we look at that little blue Toyota truck and we can judge that person's heart, we believe, with perfect clarity. No reason to be cutting me off here. No reason to be speeding past me. We don't know the hearts of other people. We can't pass condemnation on them. We also, we see the problem with human condemnations. We invent standards. We invent standards. We invent the the rules by which we're going to judge others and usurp God's place as we practice legalism. Now, let's look at verse 37 here of Luke chapter 6 a little more closely here. And, and see that this type of judging that Jesus is describing here is this last type of judgment. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Then he says this, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. What he's talking here is he's talking about judgment. He's talking about a, a, a judgment of condemnation. 
We know that he's not talking about simply practicing discernment because over and over again here in Luke chapter 6, he's talking about things that a person needs to be discerning of. Later in the, the sermon, for example, verse 43, he's going to talk about determining good fruit versus bad fruit, looking at a person's actions. The, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the, the, his evil treasure produces evil. In, Luke, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to talk about judge not lest ye be judged, but he's also going to talk about watch out for false teachers. And so clearly, as he's talking about judgment here, he's talking about a judgment of condemnation, of self-righteousness. That's the type of judging that Jesus is cautioning us against. Let me give you a couple principles here as you think about how to apply this truth of don't pass judgment on others. Uh, Principle number one, or application number one, only God has the authority to create standards and pronounce guilt. Only he has the moral authority, only he has the intellectual ability only he has the, the perfect goal in his judgment. Don't usurp, don't usurp that job of God's. A second application is that we do have the responsibility to call Christians and others to holiness and, and proclaim God's standards. And very often as Christians, as we look at the conduct of ourselves and others, we're unwilling to, to talk about the reality of sin. Uh, don't fail to do what God has called you to do in calling others to holiness and righteousness. Third application here is that you can't read people's hearts and ascribe motives. You say, but I know what they're really thinking. I know normally that's that's normally true, but this time, I know what they're thinking. No, you don't. Again, it's often true like in brother-sister, brother-brother, sister-sister conflicts. I know why you did that. I know the wickedness of your heart. No, you don't. You don't. Finally, the fourth application here. Realize that your actions reveal your future. Jesus is saying this, look, judge not and and you won't be judged. Condemn not and and you will not be condemned. We're going to talk more about what he means there in a moment, but let me just kind of hint at it here. He's talking about The person who exercises judgment on others is a person whose heart has not been rightly transformed by the gospel. Don't pass judgment on others. Second instruction here, verses 37 and 38, do lavish mercy on others. Do lavish mercy on others. Look what he says here in verse 37, last part of verse 37. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be be put or poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. First instruction here Jesus gives is, look, forgive, and and you will be forgiven. There's a lot of verses, there's a lot of uh, words that are, several words that are used in the original language that we translate forgive, the word that Jesus used here is a word that means to, to send off or to cancel, to, to put away. In Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Simeon uses this, this word in uh, verse 29. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace, to, to be sent off in, in peace. Uh, Jesus uses this word also in, in uh, Luke 
chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus, or, or Luke tells us that uh, the man from whom the demons had, had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. He, he sent him out. He removed him. The purpose of this man remaining in the community that he was at. Luke chapter 9, Luke uses this, this term again as Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He or it says, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say to him, send the crowd away, verse 12 of Luke chapter 9. Send them out. And so this word forgive has with it the idea of, of, of letting go, releasing, sending away. Jesus is saying, whenever you encounter a perceived wrong of someone else, your heart's attitude toward them is to be one of release, letting them go. What he's encouraging here is not holding on to perceived or real sin done against you by a person. It's very difficult to do as we think about how a person wrongs us, how they treat us. What Jesus is not saying here is, hey, when a person wrongs you, don't deal with it. Just forget about it. No, we know from Matthew chapter 18, we know from Luke chapter 17 that for full relational healing to take place, that, that reconciliation needs to take place and, and sin must be confronted. But the heart attitude of a person as they encounter the wrongs done against them is to be one of release. Look, I, I'm not holding what you've done to me against you. In order for reconciliation between us to, to take place, there's nothing you need to give me. There's nothing you need to do for me in order for me to have a, an attitude of warmness and, and love to, towards you. I'm no longer holding on to this thing that you've done against me. You say, man, that's, that's tough. Maybe even as you're sitting there right now, you can think of things that other people have done to you, terrible things that have happened to you, and you've been holding on to them. You, you, you think about them, you, you dwell upon them, and sometimes, even at, at points that you're not aware of, that person comes to your mind, and instantly you, you think back on that action that they did against you months, weeks, years ago. And what is Jesus' instruction here? Let it go. Let it go in the sense of, of holding on to it and wanting some sort of retaliation for what they've done against you. He says, give, give, that is give God's grace, give lavishly towards one another. I was reading this last week, maybe you saw this story too, about uh, this really cool laser system the U.S. military developed. I mean, it's cool now, it'll probably be terrible years later, but right now it sounds really cool. They take these uh, six laser thingy-majiggers, and they can uh, point these lasers at a, a drone flying through the air, and this directed energy at this drone blows it up. Okay. That's pretty cool, I think. Very often, you and I have hearts that are like lasers. And whenever a person does an action against us that we perceive as a failure on their part, we look at them and we have a laser-like attention on the wrong that they've done against us. And that wrong that they've done against us causes us to forget anything else about that person. We have a laser-like focus on their failures. And Jesus says this, look, understand. Understand if that's your focus, 
that's the judgment that you're revealing awaits you as well. Look, give, and you're going to be given to. Uh, forgive, and, and you're going to be forgiven. And, and here's, let me get to the point of what I believe Jesus is saying. The heart that has been forgiven much forgives others. And if you have a harsh, judgmental attitude towards others, what I believe it's revealing about your heart is that it has not been transformed by Jesus Christ. If you have a heart that condemns others, you reveal that your heart has not been transformed and that you've not received God's forgiveness. That's the danger. If you have a, the ability to have a laser-like focus on the the wrongs that others have commit, committed against you, it shows that perhaps you have not come to terms with the wrongs that you have committed against God and the forgiveness that he offers you, you have not received. The heart that rightly understands its own sin is a heart that should respond by asking God for his forgiveness receiving that forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then lavishly, lavishly pouring that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness on other people. This word, picture that Jesus paints here is very interesting. He says, look, uh, give and it's going to be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured out in your lap. And what he's talking about there is the measuring of grain. You can imagine uh, scooping this grain in this measuring device, and, and it's, it's a full, good measure, and then you, then you press it down to get more in there. Then you kind of shake it to make sure that any air pockets are, are pushed down. And, and, then, and then not only that, not only do you get the full measure, then there's like a, an extra scoop kind of placed on there, and it falls in your lap. It's just overflowing. That's the type of grace that we desperately need and receive from God. There's an interesting uh, Korean uh, culture, cultural uh, practice I've, I've read, and I'm, I've, I haven't confirmed it, but it's, I believe it's called kabong, and it's this, this measurement in which they would measure rice, and it was considered rude to just simply do the measure of the rice, but to you're supposed to scoop above and beyond what was provided. Our family was talking about this last night, and someone brought up the difference between going to like a, a chain ice cream store and just getting that little scoop versus going down downtown Washington to Holland's, you know, and you get that heaping scoop, you know, scoop upon scoop, overflowing. That's the type of ice cream I want. That's the type of God's grace that I desire. What level of scrutiny do you want applied to you? What standard do you want God to use to you, to use for you? I had a very good friend who was a pastor uh, who taught me a lot about discernment, recognizing the rightness and wrongness of good teaching and false teaching. And I believe that this pastor was, at his heart, a gracious person, but he failed to communicate grace to the congregation he pastored. So he taught a lot about high standards and rightness and wrongness of good doctrine, bad doctrine, but he failed to teach people what grace looked like as well and produced a church that was harsh and judgmental 
and that was the style of his teaching, and I believe that it, it boomeranged on him. He produced a people who were harsh and judgmental, and his own life couldn't withstand the scrutiny that others placed upon him. They saw his failures like any other person would have failures, and eventually uh, he had to leave that, that church. What type of standard do we want others to give to us? What type of standard do we want others to use as they look at our lives? I'd like to read to you a, a letter that I found among my grandfather's papers. My grandfather had very difficult times of his life. There were opportunities that he would have had to, to be bitter toward other people. This letter was written in his 80s, toward the end of his life. And uh, he begins, it's a, it's a prayer that, he, that he's praying in this letter that I found tucked among some of his, his Bible studies. He begins, the first paragraph, he says this. I ask you to forgive me of my sin that I've committed in the past when I slip and break your covenants. You are a gracious, loving God, and I know you love me because your son died for me and others who repent of their sins. I feel the shame of sinning when I do it. I know you love me and want me to feel shame so that I'll come closer to you God, I thank you for Jesus Christ. And then he pours out his gratefulness to God for the mercy of Jesus. That's the right heart attitude to have, isn't it? A heart that's not focused on the failures of others, but a heart that's focused on our own sinfulness, our own separation from God apart from the work of Jesus Christ, and then a heart that is grateful to Jesus Christ. I'd like to close with another quiz for you. A little bit of a different focus. How many of you this morning would acknowledge that you are in dire need of God's lavish grace? And how many of you, by God's grace, are willing to lavish that grace on others? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lavish grace you've given to us, and we pray that we would be mindful of that. And as we deal with the perceived shortcomings of others, which are nothing in comparison to our own sin against you, give us the ability to see that, allow our hearts to be transformed by your truth. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, and for your glory. Amen.